0: Hello, today we are going to be looking at 1 Kings chapter 17 and here we are introduced to the prophet Elijah for the very first time. Elijah is one of the greatest prophets of the Old Testament. Uh, We know he's great simply because of the ministry he had and the miracles that he did. But you'll recall that Elijah also appears with Moses on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus. And so Elijah has great status in the Old Testament. So let's begin in 1 Kings chapter 17 and verse 1. Today we're going to work our way through this chapter. Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years, except at my word. It's very easy to miss the magnitude of what is happening here in this Conversation between Elijah and Ahab. This is a big confrontation. King Ahab is an evil, evil man, as is his wife Jezebel, an evil woman. She's been killing the prophets of the Lord. So here we basically have a humble prophet, Elijah telling the most powerful man in the land that he is under God's judgment and that the nation is doomed until God determines otherwise. In the previous chapter, chapter 16, we read all about King Ahab. We read in verse 29, Ahab became king king of Israel, and he reigned in Samaria over Israel 22 years. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. Essentially, King Ahab is the worst king that Israel has ever had. We read in verse 31, that he not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole, and did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than did all the kings of Israel before him. So that's some of what King Ahab got up to. Instead of leading the people into the true worship of Yahweh, King Ahab sets up an altar To Baal. He he builds a temple for Baal worship in the very capital city of Israel, Samaria. We read a lot about the worship of Baal in the Old Testament. There are 90 references to Baal worship. Baal was a weather god with particular power over lightning, wind, rain, and fertility. In the dry summers, it was believed that Baal was, was in the underworld. And then when the rains began in autumn, that was, it was then believed that Baal was, was coming out and reviving the land. And because the people were mostly farmers, this was their worldview and the God that they worshipped. So we can think of Baal fundamentally as being a a rain god. And, And King Ahab sets up an altar for Baal in a special temple that he builds in Samaria. And we read that Ahab also set up an Asherah pole. We read in verse thirty-three: Ahab made an Asherah and did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than any of the kings of Israel before him. These Asherah were a little bit like totem poles. And they're mentioned all over the Old Testament, in many of the books of the Old Testament. And they're a form of of idol worship. It was a sacred object linking into the deity Asherah. Even the the Torah in the book of Deuteronomy chapter, chapter 16 tells us, Do not set up any wooden Asherah pole beside the altar you build to the Lord Yahweh your God. And do not erect a sacred stone, for these the Lord your God hates. This is what we call syncretism. In other words, people would continue to worship Yahweh, the God of Israel, but they would incorporate into their worship the worship of other gods. They would incorporate into their worship, their faith, other beliefs and practices. This is why it says in the Ten Commandments, You shall have no other gods before me, next to me, with me, before my face. Is what the command says. The Israelites were not to have Asherah poles, worship Baal, sacred stones. This is syncretism. Not a case of giving up your own faith, but keeping your own faith, but adding to it other ungodly practices from other worldviews and religions. So the worship of both Baal and Asherah were were problems for the Israelites. And this is the primary reason why Elijah confronts King Ahab. It's to speak God's judgment over him. He says, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain, In the next few years, except at my word. Your rain god, King Ahab, is going to be able to do nothing for you. You might think that Baal controls the weather, but Yahweh, whom I serve, is about to show you a thing or two. By the way, as I mentioned earlier, King Ahab had a terrible wife. Her name is is Jezebel. And in the next chapter, we, we read about what Jezebel has already been up to. It's a chapter that's looking back. And 1 Kings 18 and verse 4 speaks about Jezebel killing off the Lord's prophets. She was murdering the Lord's prophets. And so, this is a profoundly evil couple exercising rule in Israel. And it is amazing throughout history how often bad people have got themselves into positions of power and influence and leadership. And that's what's happening here. An evil, evil couple ruling over the nation of Israel with terrifying results. And so Elijah confronts Ahab. And as he does this, he's really taking his own life into his hands. As I said, this is very confrontational. Elijah is speaking truth to power. He's saying to the king, you're under God's judgment. It's not going to rain again. There's not even going to be dew on the ground apart from the will of God, the God whom I represent. And this is also a confrontation with The god Baal. After all, Baal is is the god who was supposedly controlling the weather. So to say that it's not going to rain again for for years, apart from the will of Yahweh, is is, is to take on Baal. And it's worth considering, how was it that Israel landed up wanting to worship Baal and Asherah? How how could this be? After all, God had rescued the Israelites from slavery. You'd you'd think they'd feel some kind of debt of gratitude. God had, had blessed these people with a beautiful land, a land flowing with milk and honey. They'd also become prosperous under King Solomon. They were the greatest nation around. So so how is it possible that this great nation called of God could, could become susceptible to the worship of Baal and Asherah? I think it just goes to show how easy it is for people, ourselves included, to be influenced by the culture in which we live. We say, well, we would never have done that. But I think we too are influenced by the culture in which we live. And so we need to be so careful to to critique our culture, to to compare the values of our culture and what is so apparently self-evident with what God teaches in His Word. We all live in very specific cultural contexts, each with dominant values and, and beliefs. And we as God's people need to be careful what we imbibe. I'm sure that many of these Israelites worshipped Baal and Asherah just because that's what everybody did. For many, it was unthinkable that Baal was not in charge of the weather, in charge of fertility. And when you're wanting to have a large family and, and healthy flocks and herds, the God of fertility was important to you. And so this was a widely held belief in society that Baal was was the one you had to please to, to be blessed. And many of the Israelites uncritically accepted this belief. Of course, our culture doesn't believe that Baal makes it rain, but There are other unquestionable beliefs that our society holds dear, some of which are in direct contradiction to God and his word. So this was also one of the tasks of the prophets of old, to keep God's people faithful. And that's what's going on here. That's why Elijah is confronting King Ahab. We can't be sure from this passage how long this conversation lasts. But we do know that the next thing that God tells Elijah is to run away and hide. Here's that instruction from the Lord, verse 2. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Leave here, turn eastward and hide in the Kerith ravine, east of the Jordan." You will drink from the brook, and I have ordered the ravens to feed you there. So he did what the Lord had told him. Sometimes in life, we do need to run away. There's a time to confront, like Elijah does here and like he will do later on Mount Carmel. But there are also times to run and hide, to be quiet. We see the same thing in the ministry of Jesus. On one occasion, Jesus is publicly lambasting the Pharisees. You brood of vipers, you whitewashed tombs. Bold, outspoken. And then on other occasions, Jesus slips away into the, cl- into the crowd to be alone. Sadly, serving God does at times bring us into confrontation with others. So the Lord leads Elijah to a place called the Kereth Ravine. Perhaps it was a place that Elijah knew well. Maybe he'd camped here as a a young person. Maybe this was his, his, his happy hunting ground. But he goes off here to a place relatively close from where he comes. And here he experiences God's amazing provision. We read that he went there and stayed there in that ravine. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. Isn't this lovely? God has so many weird and wonderful ways to provide for his people. Imagine this, birds dropping off food. I can imagine the the ravens thinking to themselves, wow, not only do I have a whole lot of chicks to feed, but now I've got a hungry prophet down in the, the kloof that I need to feed as well. This reminds me of God's power to provide for us, as well as God's power over nature. Remember when God provided quail for the Israelites in the wilderness. Remember that time Peter had no money and needed to pay a tax, and so God caused a fish to, to swallow a coin and then to cough it up for Peter. Remember the miraculous catch of fish. God telling the fish, fish, uh, swim together and stick close to that boat. Here we have another story of God's power over nature and God's ability to provide for us, his people. On a more serious note, I did read too that ravens are known to, to live in areas like the one where Elijah is hiding and they do have a habit of storing excess food in in crags in the cliff, and maybe they would have deposited uh, dates and 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 other things that they had been eating. And Elijah would have been able to retrieve these objects and eat them. Maybe he also found some nuts that a squirrel or two had left behind. We don't know, but he experiences God's amazing. Provision. Then we read this in verse 7. Sometime later, the brook dried up because there'd been no rain in the land. And as his circumstances change, it's, it's time to move on. Sometimes God does speak to us through our circumstances. The river drying up is is not an indication to us that God is no longer providing for Elijah. Rather, it is God using circumstances to, to tell Elijah that it's time to move on. What are we to make of it when God's provision dries up? It usually means it's a good time to seek the Lord which is what Elijah does. And here are his new instructions, verse 8. Then the word of the Lord came to him, go at once to Zarephath of Sidon and stay there. Now God is sending Elijah deeper into Phoenician territory, deeper into the drought, to Zarephath. Verse 8, the word of the Lord came to him, go to Zarephath of Sidon, stay there. I have commanded a widow in that place to supply you with food. We should understand the phrase commanded in the sense of God saying, I have ordained for a widow there to provide you with food. That's my plan for you, Elijah. Verse 10, so he went to Zarephath. When he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and asked, would you bring me a little water in a jar so I may have a drink? As she was going to get it, he called and bring me, please, a piece of bread. Again, God's provision here is, it's almost humorous in how it happens. Elijah is sent into a faraway land. Into a land experiencing a terrible drought because of God's judgment. He goes into the very stronghold of Baal worship. And God's provision for him is going to come through a destitute widow. She says to him, verse 12, As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. I'm gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Elijah said to her, don't be afraid, go home and do as you have said, but first make a small cake of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me, and then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord Yahweh, the God of Israel says, the jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord gives rain on the land. This request feels a little awkward to our modern ears, doesn't it? It goes against our Christian values. Feed me first and then look after your family. What are we to make of this interaction? Certainly, I think the value of hospitality in the ancient Near East was very different to how we see hospitality. It was a a profound duty. And if you did not help strangers that, that you ran into in faraway places, they would most probably die. And so there really was an onus on people to offer hospitality. And perhaps that's what's happening here. But perhaps Elijah is also testing this woman's faith. Testing to see if she will show allegiance to Yahweh through sacrificial giving. Amazingly, she chooses to do what Elijah asks. And in the process of her obedience, experiences God's abundant provision. It's so ironic, too, that here is God providing through a foreigner, a Phoenician, deep in Baal territory. And this foreign woman is is trusting in the God of Israel. While Israel, God's chosen people, are trusting in Baal, (laughs) there's a real irony here. I also see some similarities between this story in the Old Testament and the story in Mark 7 of Jesus healing the Syrophoenician woman. She was also a foreigner and experienced God's grace and power, while people in Israel were not. Verse 15, she went away and did as Elijah had told her. So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. For the jar of flour was not used up and the jug of oil did not run dry in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. And this miraculous provision of God also only lasts for a certain period. And then as what happened to the river happens here, something goes terribly wrong. We read in verse 17, sometime later the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. He grew worse and worse and finally stopped breathing. For a widow like this, her son would have been her pride and her joy. In many ways, her son would have carried her future. And his death was a terrible tragedy for her. I want you to see how this woman interprets the death of her son. Let's notice how she pulls this together, how she connects the dots. She concludes that because something bad is happening in her life, that God is against her. And this is such a common thought pattern and and really one that has no basis in Scripture. Bad things do happen to good people and it's usually not a sign of God's judgment. We know that from the book of Job. We, We know that from The things Jesus said, you will remember from John chapter 9, people say to Jesus, uh, there's this man who's blind, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind? And Jesus replies, neither this man nor his parents sinned to cause this illness. Also, we read in, in Luke 13, there was there was a tower that fell on a whole lot of people. And, and Jesus makes the point, they weren't any worse off than, worse than, than any of the other people alive. It was just something that happened. Wrong place, wrong time. And so this, this woman that Elijah is with, it is wrong for her to assume that because her son has died, that God is punishing her. Let's not think like that. Let's not draw these unwise and, and, and unnecessary conclusions. Well, let's pick up the conversations. She says to Elijah, What do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? It's her own guilt that is, that is coming to the fore here. And she feels that God is surely against her. You've come to remind me of my sin. Elijah says, give me your son. He took her from her arms, carried him to the upper room where he was staying, and laid him on his bed. Then he cried out to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought tragedy also upon this widow I am staying with by causing her son to die? So Elijah doesn't, this, doesn't interpret this as God punishing this woman. He calls it a tragedy. And we ought to be very careful as Christians not to conclude that when bad things happen to people that God is judging them. Let's avoid making these false assumptions about people and why things are happening both good And bad. Verse 21. Then Elijah stretched himself out on the boy three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this boy's life return to him. This also seems very weird to us today. And probably if a pastor were to try this today in a children's ministry context, he would be arrested and rightly so. But this is a prophetic action. This is how Elijah chooses to pray. He's symbolically transferring the life and power of God that is in him into this deceased child. And we read in verse 22, The Lord heard Elijah's cry, and the boy's life returned to him, and he lived. Elijah picked up the child and carried him down from the room to the house and gave him to his mother and said, Look, your son is alive. Then the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is true. As a result of this miraculous healing, this woman's faith in Yahweh, is confirmed. By the way, the New Testament holds up Elijah's prayer life as one that we should emulate. I'm sure you know this scripture from James chapter 5. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Elijah was a man just like us, He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. Imagine having a prayer life like Elijah. So this is our passage for today. Let me summarize as I conclude Today's sermon introduces us to one of the greatest prophets in the Old Testament. And his ministry begins with a confrontation with King Ahab. He speaks God's judgment over King Ahab and over his kingdom. It's also a showdown with Baal, the god of rain and fertility. Elijah is making the point that it's God who controls the weather. We also see in this passage how easy it is for us to imbibe the ideas and beliefs of the culture in which we're living. This is something that we need to be ever mindful of. Just as God's people accepted This idea that Baal was in charge of of the rain and and the seasons and fertility. They, They kind of just incorporated that worldly idea into their worldview. Much of what our society accepts as gospel truth is in fact contrary to God's truth. Also in this passage, we we saw that after Elijah's showdown with Ahab, he has to go into hiding for a long, long time. And there in a faraway place, he experiences God's miraculous provision. We see God's power over nature using ravens to bring Elijah food. And we see God providing for Elijah through a destitute widow. And we learn that God can provide for us in the most unlikely of ways. I hope that you've already experienced that in your life. I've certainly, I certainly have. Thank God. We also need to be careful about the conclusions we draw when things go wrong in our lives. God hadn't stopped providing for Elijah when the river dried up. God merely had another plan. When the widow's son dies, that wasn't God's judgment. Elijah says it's a tragedy and prays to God to raise him back to life. And today we've also learned about prayer, that we should have a prayer life like Elijah, because the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. I hope you are an intercessor. I hope you are somebody that prays about the things that are important to God and to you. Let's pray. Thank you for this great story, Lord, of Elijah confronting Ahab. Thank you that it becomes an opportunity for you to reveal your power, your power over nature, your power over the gods. And we pray, Lord, that you would keep us from imbibing falsehoods that are so prevalent in our society. Help us to have our minds shaped by your word, to have a truly Christian worldview. Thank you for your providence. Thank you for your power, Lord. Thank you for your ability to provide for us in amazing and in unusual ways. And we pray that you would teach us how to pray as Elijah did. Lord, may we be righteous people abiding in Christ and praying according to your will. For we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.